The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now I'd like you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 28. And it is a pleasure to open the Bible to the Old Testament scriptures. And we need to remind ourselves that this is the Word of God and that there is enough information in this for the Holy Spirit to bring people to the knowledge of salvation, even if you haven't read the entire New Testament. And I think that is a, that is a question that's, that's worthy of consideration. Could we do without the New Testament and entirely rely upon the Old Testament alone for our understanding of salvation. Now, it is certainly true that those in the Old Testament didn't have New Testament revelation of Christ, and yet we do know that Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and all the prophets understood that we are saved by God's grace, we're saved by faith alone by God's grace, And so we ask the question, could we abandon the New Testament and use only the Old Testament scriptures today? Well, despite what I've just said, I think it would be difficult, if not impossible, for us to do it because it was never God's intention that we would be ignorant of Christ's work and still be able to understand his salvation. Now, in the Old Testament, there was an offering of sacrifices. There was a covering for sin until Christ came But since Christ did come and is the antitype of Old Testament sacrifices, there is no covering without belief that he came to reconcile us to God. And so today, people must hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is his death, burial, and resurrection. Faith in the work of Christ is the means of our justification. And so to be without the knowledge of the New Testament would be uh, to be without knowledge of Christ. Now, if we, if we could be saved without that knowledge, then Christ doesn't really need to be preached. But we go into the New Testament and we see the Apostle Paul and the others preached about Christ, even though the New Testament wasn't complete. They always spoke of Christ as the Messiah, how he came and fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And they never encouraged that another Old Testament sacrifice would be made because Christ came and those sacrifices are no longer valid. And so then the question is this, is there enough information in the Old Testament to be saved without any knowledge of the new? And to that I would say it would be possible to be saved without a copy of the New Testament, but not without the knowledge that's in the New Testament. And so uh, there's not enough information in the Old Testament alone if we don't tell people that the Messiah has come as promised in the Old Testament and that he died and arose for our justification. But when we take the, the Old Testament and we combine it with the New, then we have information that can't be obtained if we just have the New Testament alone. So is the New Testament alone? Is that enough for us to be saved? Well, the answer to that question is yes. And therefore, there are many copies of the New Testament that are made without copies of the Old Testament. But the next question is, is it wise to read the New Testament without the knowledge of the Old? And the answer to that question is no. 
because then we have an incomplete picture. We don't understand all there is to be known in the Bible about Christ. So, should we read the New Testament without the Old? No, because then your education in Scripture would be terribly deficient. You get to Romans, you get to Hebrews and those books, and you wouldn't be able to understand them very well unless you have some knowledge of the Old Testament. And you couldn't read Jesus in the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, without having knowledge of the Old Testament because Jesus heavily relied on Old Testament Scriptures to speak of himself. So you need the Old Testament to give you that complete picture. There are many churches that have congregational readings, just as we do in our church on Sundays, and, and they choose to read both an Old Testament and a New Testament portion of Scripture and to preach from those. And I'm happy that we're able just to take the Old Testament and preach from it because it fills out our revelation of Christ and His redemptive work. And that's what this series is for. We're seeking the Savior in the Old Testament in order to deepen our understanding of the New Testament. Now, our text in Exodus is a command for Israel to choose priest and then to dress the priest in a special clothing that would reflect the beauty and the glory of God. And we see in our text verses Exodus 28, 1 and 2 are the beginning of the text. And thou shalt take unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest office, even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother for glory and for beauty. Now once again, I want to show you an, an artist rendering of the Old Testament priest in his full costume that we find in this chapter. Other artists have drawn this a little bit differently because nobody knows exactly what the Old Testament priests look like. But from following the text that we have in Exodus 28, I think this one has all the visual elements that we need. And so this afternoon, our, our subject is part number five of our outline. And we're going to talk tonight so a little bit more about the breastplate of the priest his breastplate, and that breastplate stands for the compassion and the wisdom of Christ. The breastplate uh, is the square piece that you saw on his chest. Can you go back to that just a second there, Samuel? That square piece on his chest, it's described in, in uh, verses 15 through 30. And before we resume the study there, let me mention the other parts of the, of the wardrobe that we've already discussed. The white part that you see on the sleeves and at, at the bottom are the undergarment. That is a white robe that the priest would put on first. And then there's a blue robe that goes over that. That's next, and that's called the robe of the ephod. And at the bottom of that robe on the hem, there are alternating bells and pomegranates. Those encircle the hem of the robe. And the gold in, in, in both those bells and pomegranates would make this a very, very expensive garment. Then the multicolored piece that you see over that is a tunic that's called the ephod. The colors of it are blue and purple and scarlet. It was made of one piece that slipped over the head and then fastened at the shoulders with two stones that served as buttons. And on those two stones are engraved the six names, uh, one, uh, six names on each stone of the tribes of Israel. Then around the priest's waist... Binding these garments together is the curious girdle. Curious in the King James simply means artistic. 
And so this was a very fine piece of needlework. It's a belt of the same colors of the ephod, except it had a little difference, and that was there was a gold thread that was spun into this to go with the other colors. Then next is the piece that we're talking about, the breastplate. On top of the ephod on the priest's chest was this square piece that's held on by a gold cord on each side that's hooked at the shoulders. And then there is a blue ribbon that goes through two rings at the bottom of that, and that holds it in place just above the curious girdle. In the breastplate, there are 12 precious stones. Each one is a different type of stone, and on each of these one of the names of the children of Israel is engraved. Verse 29, we pointed out last week, expresses a wonderful thought about how this garment pictures Christ. It says, And Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goeth in unto the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. So the stones are over Aaron's heart, and that indicates his concern for all of Israel as he performs his priestly duties. He represented all of them. And when we reach the, the study of the Day of Atonement, I'll explain how the high priest would remove all of this outward clothing and he would go into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, only dressed in the white linen garment. So from head to toe, the priest is dressed in pure white. But for the daily sacrifices, this is what you would see in Israel. You would see the high priest dressed this way every day, performing daily sacrifices. And every day he has the names on the breastplate over his heart. So what is the picture of Christ? It is that we are close to Christ's heart. Now, as the, as the high priest carried those names with him, so does Christ know all the names of his people. He always has them in his memory as he continues his daily intercessory work before God's throne. Now, at the end of the last message, we carefully examined the Lord's remembrance of Israel, and we talked about how the Lord has not forgotten his nation. And that's reflected in the prophecies of the tribulation where there will be 12,000 that are saved out of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then their names are also remembered in the heavenly city, in the gates of the new Jerusalem. There are four gates to that city. And on each of those gates, there are three names of the children of Israel until you add up to 12 going all the way around. And then Israel is also remembered in the millennial kingdom. The kingdom is the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophetic promises that Israel would have a kingdom that's extensive to the entire world. Now I want to return to this thought and, and to show you the intent of the Old Testament rituals to teach us about Christ's compassion for his people. Now previously we have discussed the two stones that are on the shoulders. Those stones were engraved with, as I said, the names of the tribe, six on each stone. That represents Israel collectively. But in the breastplate, the names show up again, but they're not grouped in pairs of six. But each name is there individually, one name on each of those 12 stones. And that teaches that the love of Christ is not simply a love for the mass of humanity. It, it's not as if we are nameless faces in the sense of all without distinction, but Christ's love and his salvation, his redemptive work is for his people particularly. That is that he knows the names of each one of us. He knows his children and he provides and he cares for them specifically and individually. 
And confidently, I can say by the Word of God that His love for born-again believers is not the same as for those who never believe in Him and by their rejection of God are destined to hell. And I know that goes against the grain of popular theology because soul winners are so eager to tell people that God loves them and God has a wonderful plan for everyone's life. But those are their words. Those aren't the words of the Scripture. They don't fit the types of the Old Testament. Neither do they match the teachings of the New. And I know that's very difficult for people, some people to accept. But understanding it in any other way leaves us with dozens of other theological quandaries that can't be solved. And the most serious of those is that God equally loves those that are in heaven as those that are in hell. And that's to say that God has people in hell and that God has children in hell who will receive no saving benefit of his substitutionary sacrificial death. And it's to say that God put on Christ enough suffering to pay for their sins and yet they suffer for the very same sins that were placed on Christ even though a payment has been made. That theological mess is multiplied when you consider that the sacrifice of Christ was made at a time when hell was already populated. When there were already thousands, millions of people that were in hell before the sacrifice was ever made. And so the question has to be asked, did Christ die for them? Did Christ provide uh, a substitute, as a substitute for them? Did he suffer for them? Is the substitutional death on the cross, is that enough? when they're not going to receive any benefits from it, that it's impossible that they would ever receive benefits from it. To quote the title of a popular Arminian book by Dave Hunt, he asked the question, what love is this? Where he's disputing what I've just told you. And we have to ask, what love is this? That God would put suffering on his precious son that was needless. And yet Hunt seemed to be more concerned about what happens to man rather than what happens to the sinless Christ. The Old Testament types don't support it. The high priest bore the names of God's people as these sacrifices were made. There aren't any others that are considered. Oh, there were many nations that lived around on all sides of Israel, but there are no sacrifices that are made for them. You won't find one. And answering to that type, Christ does not sacrifice for those that he does not save. Now, at his birth, the scriptures were very clear about this. The angel Gabriel spoke to Joseph, and he said to him, Call his name Jesus. Why? Because Jesus means Savior. And it said, the angel said, He shall save his people. It doesn't say people. It says his people from their sins. Now, the theological holes are numerous for those that don't understand this. They teach a, a general atonement, meaning a universal atonement, which has no personal meaning, no personal meaning to the mass that's included. There is no person who believes in a universal atonement who can say that Christ died particularly for them. Instead, they would tell you that salvation is for those who punch their ticket for the train. But God doesn't know, Christ doesn't know who's going to get on. He doesn't know how many will be there. He just gets on the train and then he counts the noses. But then he also loves those that, that didn't get on board. And so he just waves goodbye to them as the train pulls out of the station. They didn't have enough sense to get on. And so he tells them, catch the next, next train. That's the one that's headed for hell. Well, salvation then wouldn't be dependent upon what Christ did if that was true. 
If he did the same for all, it wouldn't be dependent on him. It would be dependent upon us. Salvation is dependent on what we do. So then who do we thank? Do we thank him or do we thank us? Now most of you understand that because you've been taught this way. We put the Old Testament and New Testaments together and we achieve a sustainable theology on this, on this subject. But then there are other questions that arise. And this question would have to be asked, how much does God love us? Does he love me enough to ensure that I won't go to hell? Well, none of these, none of their soul winners can say assuredly that God loves you enough to keep you out of hell because his love stops at your will. It's not going to go beyond your will. It's not deep enough to save you despite yourself. Now, you explain that thought to your children. When you say, honey, I'd like you to make your own decisions. It's your will, not mine. So you just go out there and cross 101 on your own. See what happens then. Will that prove that you love your children? Well, certainly not. No, you love them enough that you keep them from being run over in the highway out there. Now, according then to the eternal purpose of God, he determined those who are going to be on Christ's breastplate. His breastplate was prepared and it was inscribed with the names when he said that it was done. And very clearly the scriptures tell us that this was before the foundation of the world. That Christ saw those names and he took them to the altar of his cross even as the high priest bore the names of Israel and took them before the brazen altar at the tabernacle. So Christ, he had, had all of eternity to think about, to ponder these names and what he would do for them. It's not a sea of nameless, faceless humanity that Christ died for. But everyone that Christ died for will be redeemed and will be in heaven with him. Then another thought that we might have is we have that, that picture that we've showed you. And, and there on that breastplate, there's not a picture of a globe. There's not even a picture of the Middle East. Oh, this is about Israel. This is God's chosen people. And repeatedly we see in the scriptures, Israel, mine, elect. And it makes no sense to single them out as the, his elect if all are God's elect. Now it's somehow strange that Jesus and Paul and others in the New Testament spoke of believers as God's elect. This is personal salvation that we're talking about here. This is not cattle call salvation. And so we can say by the word of God, or can we say, I should ask, uh, can we say that God loved Charles Manson, who's now dead? Did he love him in the same way that he loves you as a believer? Are those loves equal? Does the same thing happen in God's love? Do you feel special if you think God loves Charles Manson as much as he does me? It isn't based on anything that you did, obviously not. You're not better than Charles Manson. I'm not better than him. I'm only saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, by the grace of God. But I know that God, in, he is the one who put that all into place. He is the one that works that out. He's the one who drew me and gave me that ability to believe in him. Listen to William Brown, who was a brilliant expositor of the tabernacle. He said, if the pious Israelite, when he saw or thought of the name of his tribe glittering on the high priest's breastplate, rejoiced with a glad heart, knowing that in consequence he had an interest in his mediation, how much greater should be the joy of the child of God now, when with the eye of faith he surveys the breast of Jesus, the great high priest, and beholds his name 
shining there. Hebrews, our guidebook for understanding Old Testament ritual, says in the second chapter, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, I and the children which God hath given me. And so whose name are on, whose names are on Christ's breastplate? It's the children that God gave him. Listen to Peter when he preached to Israel on the day of Pentecost. He said, then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The promise is to Israel and to your children and who? To whom? Everybody else? That doesn't sound right. He might have said this is a promise that's to everybody. But he said this is to Israel and to as many as the Lord our God shall call. Does he call everyone? Then we're going to have to prove that every person in the entire world has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's the way that God calls. He calls through the gospel. Now you see, this gives meaning to the names on the breastplate. You see how the names over the heart of the high priest, are, uh, that is a place of endearment that no others have. This is a special place. And by that breastplate, we are close to Christ's heart. Now secondly, we enter on into a, another great doctrine that's taught by this, and that is we are kept by God's grace. We're told in the Old Testament about the names how they're inscribed, or they are inscribed. Isaiah 49, verse 16 says, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. And then what does the New Testament say? Jesus in John chapter 10 said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Do you notice that Jesus said, My sheep, hear my voice? Does that give more meaning to the promise that salvation is to those whom the Lord calls? He calls the ones that hear, and it's his sheep that hear. Are all sheep? And there are some who will argue that. Well, all are sheep, then all hear. And that means everybody is kept, according to this scripture, Universal atonement always logically leads to universal salvation. So the names in the breastplate are one and the same with those that hear. And these that hear are securely in the hands of both the Father and the Son. And then another method of God securing our salvation is by the work of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is a Trinitarian responsibility. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 Verses 21 and 22. Now he which establish us with you is in Christ, hath anointed us, and hath anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. You know, there are many people who don't believe Trinitarian doctrine. Well, you're going to have to tear that verse out of the Bible because there we have Christ, we have God, we have the Holy Spirit. Christ the Father, the Holy Spirit. 
And then in Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 11 through 14, "...in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will." that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believe ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory." And then in Ephesians 4.30, it says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. And then there are those other passages of Scripture that you are familiar with, the passages in Romans that declare the protection of Christ, Romans chapter 8, where we find in those Scriptures, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And that follows uh, the section in verses 28 through 30, and the golden chain of salvation. And because God's purpose is from eternity to eternity, there can be no undermining of that purpose. That purpose was established in eternity past and must be fulfilled in eternity future. God is timeless. God lives in an eternal present. And so how could anything change? And that's reflected marvelously in Romans Chapter 8 is that entire chapter is a testament to the saving, preserving grace of Jesus Christ. Now you start that chapter out, and the very first verse sets the tone for it. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And then by the end of that chapter, Paul's persuasive arguments lead to no other conclusion than this. Who shall lay anything... To the charge of God's elect. It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It, it is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, remark further in ending this point on security. Christ provides all the power for sustaining grace. It is required that we persevere. The scriptures surely say, he that endures to the end shall be saved. And that point has been made repeatedly in the Sunday morning series on the seven churches. Perseverance is a direct link to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That there is no one who is saved who does not persevere in the faith by having Christ as Lord and Master and then lives in obedience to him. And that ability, that ability to obey is also by God's grace so that we can say the only kind of faith that God gives is a persevering faith. He gives no other kind. That truth is also told in the Old Testament. The example that we have is how Israel obtained the promised land. How did they get there? Well, it was by 
faith in God that he would lead them. It was faith in God that was demonstrated by their obedience to God's commandments. And God was not going to lead them into, into Canaan except by their obedience. And that's the very reason they wandered so long in the desert. It took 40 years to get stubborn disobedience out of their hearts. Why did they enter? Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 3. Harden not your hearts, or why didn't they enter is my question. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So there was a, a disobedient generation that had to be purged so there would be a faithfully obedient nation that would emerge. And so at the, at the end of 40 years in the book of Deuteronomy, we see that the law of God is renewed, it's repeated. The people were circumcised, then they crossed Jordan and entered the land. And so in the present, there must be a faithfully obedient generation that will enter heaven. It's not an enormous number of professors with false professions won by fundamentally flawed soul-winning techniques, but it must be a faithful generation. True Christians are faithful. They all have the marks of salvation, and those marks of salvation are their willingness to obey the commands of Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, let's very clearly understand here that we're not talking about being saved by keeping commandments. We're talking about the evidence that we are saved. If people don't keep commandments, they have no proof that they actually do know Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago in our Roman study with the men, I, I remarked that I have nearly erased the term backsliding Christian from my vocabulary. Oh, I, I realize that backsliding, that's a biblical term, but I also believe it's very sorely misapplied. I do believe that there are Christians that can backslide. I believe that's possible. But backslidden, saying I'm a backslidden Christian, is too often a crutch for those who aren't truly saved. Many are not backslidden Christians. They're lost unbelievers. And they're holding on to this false profession that never produced any evidence in their lives. And their proof of salvation is this. They will tell you, well, I was baptized. I went into the water. I got dunked. I must be saved. Well, no, they got wet. They're wet unbelievers is all they are. They're dunked, unbaptized, or dunked unbelievers, I should say, not born-again baptized converts. You can't remove perseverance from preservation. We are only secure in our salvation when there is evidence of that salvation. So it's erroneous to tell anybody, oh, you made a profession? Well, then don't let anybody tell you that you're not saved. You said the prayer. All is well. But I would tell them you're not saved unless you live by the profession that you've made. True believers are changed into disciples that live for Christ. And if that didn't happen, then neither did salvation. And so for all those who love to use the backslidden crutch, the Lord will kick that crutch out from under them in the last day. They will not enter. Why? Because of unbelief. And then finally, I want to note that all 
of the names of the sons are on the breastplate. From first to last, they're all there. And that inclusiveness of the nation is emblematic of Christ's genuine love for all. It teaches that there is love in Christ's heart for all, that he doesn't, he doesn't discriminate within the complement of those that are chosen. Now, let me explain that to you. There, there isn't any such thing as categories, categories of special Christians and ordinary Christians and subordinary Christians. At the 1st of November, Table Talk had a few sentences on this describing the Roman Catholic perception of the division between the uh, clergy and the laity. And in Catholicism, they teach that the clergy, those are the special Christians, that the, the priests and the nuns, they're of a higher order. They're not ordinary Christians. Catholics teach that, but the Bible doesn't. The priests in Israel were certainly distinguished by special clothing, but they weren't different at all in their salvation. They were men taken from among men. They remained men. And then in the New Testament, we find that the Bible teaches that every believer is a priest. So the pastor and the deacons are not a higher order of Christians. Each of you is to be as godly as me. And quite frankly, I think there are some of you that are probably godlier than me. I don't have any claim to holiness because I'm called to the ministry. The ministry doesn't make me holy. I have to be sanctified by obedience just as every one of you. And so the qualifications for pastor and deacons in 1 Timothy are good for every member, excepting perhaps those that are male-specific. So we have these wonderful truths then that come out of the Old Testament, taken alone without the New Testament, we wouldn't know that these things relate to Christ. So we need the New Testament to show us this enduring priesthood of Christ and know that he is full of compassion for every believer. And so whether you have a formal position in the church or you don't have one, we all are accepted in the beloved because of the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Now, I have just one more issue to deal with concerning the breastplate. This is in verse number 30. And thou shalt put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be upon Aaron's heart when he goeth in before the Lord, and Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel upon his heart before the Lord continually. There's probably not a more debated or least understood part of the breastplate than the Urim and the Thummim. We don't have time to tackle that this afternoon. And so uh, I'm going to give you a break. We're going to take up that in the next message. You can think about it, see what you think. And I can tell you that the Urim and the Thummim relate to the wisdom of Christ. And we'll talk about that in the next message. So take some time. Study the Old and the New Testaments together this week. Read from both Testaments. Be students of the entire Bible. Be a person who reads the Bible cover to cover. Because all of it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we do especially thank you, Lord, for places that we can go to establish the doctrines of the word, to undergird the things that we believe, and we know, Lord, that we're safe when we've taken Scripture and we've explained Scripture and we've shown how these things work together to sustain the doctrine that we teach. We don't want to make any statements, declare any doctrine that's not found 
and your precious holy word. So help us, Lord, to be faithful to that. Bless your people. We thank you for the attention that we've had tonight. And we pray, Lord, these concepts will be thought over and uh, contemplated very seriously and stick with us as true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.